0: Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo Podcast. Well, folks, tell me, London, Paris, Dubbo, B scooters, is this going to be our future here in Dubbo? On today's show, we're going to chat about that. We're also going to talk about the fact that is it possible for local councils to possibly share their services with each other? In this modern world, is this the future for local councils? And finally, is Dubbo about to get a new housing precinct? Well, i tell you what, there's lots of pressure right now in regards to the housing market, so is this going to be something as well that we're going to look at in regards to here in Dubbo? All of this will be chatted on today with our local mayor, Matthew Dickerson.
1: Good morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, Mark. Thanks for coming on and chatting to me again. It's actually going really well. There's lots of people giving me comments about the podcast, and it's a great way to get lots of information out there. It's There's so much to talk about, I suppose, that happens each week in Council, and we narrow it down to the most important hours worth of yes, things it, that happen. But, but,
0: but abridging all those seven days into one hour.
1: Yeah, that's right, and we could almost do this every day. I think there's so much that happens, and that's really only things that... I know about from a council perspective but what I've always found is what happens in Dubbo in general is incredible there are so many things going on that don't involve council but the community is a thriving community and that applies to the whole Dubbo Regional Council local government area things happening in Wellington all the time as well even the villages have got all sorts of things happening. So absolutely. it's a pretty exciting area and some pretty exciting things happening and coming up over the next days, weeks, months, years. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Now what about yesterday, the Remembrance Day? Let's start with that. What a it was a beautiful ceremony. Wasn't it lovely to actually to get down back to the park? People there. And to commemorate what was a very very special moment.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. And one of the things that was a little bit disappointing was the rain just mm. started coming because we were looking forward to a large crowd again, having been able to have the full restrictions lifted over the last couple of years. So we were thinking this is going to be a really good event again, and it was a great mm. event. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but just a, I think a few people stayed away because and actually it actually was interesting. I went into a conference to speak at a conference first thing that morning when I went into that conference to speak. The clouds were there, but it looked like it was dry. And when I came out, it was raining. I went, oh, no, more rain.
0: In many ways, it sort of added to the atmosphere. (laughs) It did, You you could sort of almost sit yourself in the battle of the Somme sort of stuff in the trenches there. And we got
1: through it okay. It wasn't until just towards the end that it just started to drizzle a bit more. But I think that threat of rain certainly kept some people away, but it was great to see yourself there, school kids there, yeah. great to see army cadets there, various return service people. So it is a very solemn day, and it's yeah. one of those really tricky days I find. Sometimes I've heard people say Anzac Day and Remembrance Day celebrations, and I pause a little bit mm. that and I think, well, it's not really celebration, because no. we're not really celebrating that people died. But we're actually celebrating what a wonderful nation we have. But I, I don't like the word celebration there. I tend to use more the word recognition yes. or acknowledgement. And it is one of those things that it is a great nation that we live in. Yes. Lots of people have sacrificed their lives. At the heart of the War Memorial building in Canberra is the Roll of Honour. And that's got the names of approximately 103,000 members of the Australian Armed Forces have sacrificed their lives to keep our way of life the way it is now. The freedoms that we enjoy, yes. that's an incredible sacrifice. And I i can't get my head wrapped around the idea that back in, say, 1915, which is when most of the people enlisted in the First World War, yes. sitting there saying, I'm going off to travel to some far-flung land. Six months on a boat. and And go and do I don't know what. Yeah but I know it's going to be fairly unpleasant and I know it's going to involve possibly shooting other people and I really can't get my head wrapped around that. It's just too much for me to fathom. So I just can't imagine what went through the heads of those people doing that at that time and then so many people were lost along the way, so many people that were the next generation of people, I mean, I don't know that we actually even realise today the full impact yeah. of exactly what happened during the First World War and the loss of all those 18 to 44-year-old men yeah. who were the tradies, the labourers, the farmers, the people who were building this very young nation. Yes. Just trying to get their head wrapped around that. So it is a day to reflect, a day to say thank you to all those people. And there are still mm-hmm. people out there now. There are still people deployed on overseas services or overseas deployments. There are still people out there ready to go if wherever we need them. And we even see that with COVID, for example. We mm-hmm. use some of the Australian Defence Force to help some of the COVID vaccinations or COVID testing. So we can use our Defence Forces in peacetime as well, mm. but we just have that little bit of security knowing they're there. So That'd thank you great. to all those people. It was a solemn day. It was a very nice day. It was Tom Gray's last year as president of the RSL sub-branch. Yes, yes. He's been there for a number of years, and it's been great working with Tom. And it's it's very good. We've got a very good relationship with the RSL sub-branch. Uh, someone else will come in who will do a wonderful job as well in the future, but Tom has done a fantastic job there in the past.
0: Well, congratulations to everybody involved in yesterday, and, and thank you again to all of our return servicemen, for all those guys out there and girls who are out there right now working there doing what they're doing to protect us and what our way of life is. Now, Matt, uh, e-scooters. This is an interesting little point of conversation, isn't it, eh? Like it's, uh, I remember over in San Diego, I went across there a few years ago and there's this beautiful boardwalk area that sort of sits out there in front of the beach area and uh, went across there and uh, my son got hold of one of these e-scooters and he was only a young bloke at the time and got on it and just had the absolute ball. Now, these things scoot along. They're they're well-named, aren't they, e-scooters, because they literally do scoot. Mm. So it... You know, I hear the fact that this is potentially part of the conversation here in Dubbo. Are we looking at e-scooters here in Dubbo? So what's what's actually
1: happening here? Well, yes and no, if that okay. answers the question succinctly. <laughs> and I'm a bit the same as you. I've ridden them at various places around the world. I've had the whole family on trips. All six of us have been out at various places, riding them, getting from point A to point B as a convenient method of transport. And that's been in Australia as well. I've ridden them in Darwin. I've ridden mm-hmm. them in Hobart. I've ridden them in Canberra. So there are they are available at certain places in Australia. The interesting part is that any form of e-scooter in this state is illegal. So when you see people on their private e-scooters that okay. they've bought from somewhere and they're riding along Track O'Reilly or they're riding out through the footpaths, they're illegal. If any company came along to do a higher e-scooter, like you've done in San Diego, for mm. example, that's illegal at the moment as well. Yeah. It was many months ago when I was on a radio station doing an interview and the radio host said to me, they're doing an e-scooter trial in some location in Sydney. Why aren't we doing them here? And my first reaction was, well, they're illegal, so of yep. course we can't do them. But I actually chased up the state government, and they said, we're actually rolling out a trial. And I said, oh, well, we'd be interested in that. Yep. How do we become part of this potential trial? How do we get to be, or well, find out the details, I suppose, for a start, and then go forward and see what we can do? And they said, submit an application. Well, where's the application form? Well, mm-hmm. there is none. Just send an application in. So it seemed like it wasn't it really... It vague. It did seem a bit vague. So mm-hmm. we said, sure, there's a few steps to go, and we'd like to know the details of it, but We'll put our hand up and we're interested. Mm. That's as far as we went at the first stage. We want to talk to our community to make sure they're comfortable with it. We're going to find out the details of it because what are you talking about? Where are they able to be used? A whole range of things. I spoke to the zoo because I thought that'd be exciting yes. if we could have them around Tracker Riley.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah,
1: around Tracker Riley, maybe out through the zoo. So there were a whole range of things to look at around e-scooters. And it didn't go very far for a while. Mm. And then there was an e-scooter expo in Sydney, out in Western Sydney. And I happened to be in Sydney the day it was on. And I said, oh, great, look, I'll go out there and have a look. Went out there met with Rob Stokes, who was the minister. Actually, he mentioned Dubbo in his media release. He oh, said, right, it's great yeah. to see the Dubbo yeah. mayor here looking at e-scooters and the potential they might have in regional areas as well as metro areas. Had one of our staff there. And the idea of that day was to look at the various e-scooter manufacturers, e-scooter companies that you can do the hires with. And we'd already had some talk to us and we said it's too early to talk to us yet Mm. because we haven't even got permission from the state government to do it. We don't know what it looks like. We haven't talked to our community about it. We need to do some consultation there. Mm. So it's a bit too early to talk to us. Mm. What we found out on that expo day was that, in my opinion, the state government had it a bit backwards. When I spoke to Rob Stokes and some of the staff that were there, they said, have you signed up your agreement with one of the e-scooter companies? And we said, mm. no, that's way too early for that. That is definitely a case of the cart before the horse. We've got to get permission from you first. Then we've got to talk to our community. Then we've got to talk to an e-scooter company. Yeah. There's no, 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 that's all wrong. You go and do an agreement with the e-scooter company first. But I said, we don't know whether you're going to give us permission. We'll give you permission. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like a bit of a so, backward way to do yeah,
0: absolutely. it. Absolutely. Like, Does that mean, though, the fact that they're prepared to make a new law up ad hoc almost, because wow. that, you do, that the seems to be The light-taker. example
1: I gave was that that would be like going and engaging my builder to build a house yeah. before I put the DA in to see what the house was going to look like. Absolutely. Surely I've got to get my plans done first before I even go and engage a builder. But they told me, no, this was a process. We go and find an e-scooter company. In conjunction with the e-scooter company, we then go forward to the state government and say we'd like a trial. And then at that stage, presumably somewhere along the way, we needed to consult our community once we know the parameters. One of the interesting things I found out on that day was that what they wanted to do is when they introduced e-scooters into a community, they wanted them available on every road that was at sixty, uh, sorry, 50 kilometres an hour or less. Right. So it would mean down the main street of Dubbo, yep. they're allowed to be used. Not on footpaths. They're going to be illegal on footpaths. Right. And it's interesting in some places. So for example, in Darwin, they're illegal on the roads. You can ride them on the footpaths, but you right. can't ride them on the roads. And then they're very restricted in the speed. So, for example, on a shared pathway like Tracker Riley, yep. 10 kilometres an hour is the maximum speed that you can go. Now, you and I have been at Parkrun this morning and we yes. saw some of the people way out at the pointy end of Parkrun. I've Run. got a
0: feeling they probably might beat those scooters from based on that there. Well, they were definitely running faster <laughs> than 10 kilometres an
1: hour, I can guarantee some of those guys out the front there, guys and girls out the front there. Yes, yes. So there's a whole range of things that are unknown about it. Yes. So we were progressing along the path. We said, we'll keep playing the game, we'll keep going down that path? Because we want to eventually get to the stage where we know all the details mm. and then we can finally go to the community because the community were asking me questions about it. How fast can you go? Well, I, yeah. I'd already found out that answer. What happens with insurance? Who covers the insurance? I said, well, I don't know. We need to find that out. What happens if one gets thrown in the river? Well, we'll find out what happens there. What happens if they get left around a big pile? Well, I'll find out that as well. So yeah. there are all these questions. But I didn't know all the fair answers questions to
0: questions at the end of the day,
1: aren't they? Absolutely right. They were all valid, fair questions. And again, it's not like, New South Wales is going to be the first place in the world to introduce Mm, them. mm. So I'm sure they've worked out lots of those things. In fact, one of the e-scooter companies we talked to, I said, where we want them is around our river. What happens if someone throws one in the river? They said, yep, ours floats. But okay, okay. fantastic. So that makes it easy to retrieve from the river. They engage people to to do that. They actually pay, and again, these are things we found out along the way, they pay the council in the community to come into the community. So for example, if an e-scooter company comes along, gets permission, we do the public consultation, and then finally they come in, they might put a 200 scooters, whatever they think needs to service the Dubbo community, and then they might pay the council fifty grand, hundred grand, depending on the number of hires right. that those e-scooter companies, or sorry, the e-scooters are used for. So in a sense, in essence, you get some money, and you can put that money towards keeping the tracker Riley up to date, yep. or putting some lights on Tracker Riley. All sorts of things. You can use it for whatever you want, but yep. you might use it for some of those areas. So it got to the point now where there's a state election coming up. So there's suddenly Mm -hmm. some deadlines coming along and the state government said to all the potential councils that were out there looking at it, we've now got a deadline. You've got to have your application in by this date and you've got to start your trial by January. And that's when we said, no, okay, we've been happy to play the game with you up to now, but when you put those deadlines that don't give us the chance to find out all the details Mm -hmm. and to find out what our community thinks of all that, we're now going to say, sorry, We stop, we withdraw. So, at our council committee meeting on Thursday night, Mm. we said we'll withdraw from the trial. And we'll still keep talking to the state government because we're still interested in it, Mm. but not on your timeline and not under your guidelines, under our timeline and our guidelines. So has
0: the state government given you any support in this area apart from simply saying, hey, listen, you go out there and uh, do all the the groundwork for us and go out and do the trial and then come back and we'll let you know if we agree and accept the fact this is the new proposal? Have you actually done anything there to support us in that way?
1: It has been a bit hard to go through the process. And I I think you're right. I don't think the right level of support has been there. They did put on that expo that one day. So that at least gave us the chance to talk to all the e-scooter providers there together. And I rode all the e-scooters that were there on the day from different manufacturers or different Mm. companies. So a little bit there. But I just think they need, or they probably needed to think about their process before it all started and go through it in a much better way. So at this stage, we have officially withdrawn. Okay. What we will do, and sorry, when I say that, That was the decision of the committee meeting. What technically happens from a committee meeting is the recommendations of the committee go to council. The next council meeting is on Thursday week, so it hasn't officially been withdrawn yet, but it was fairly clear that councillors were going a certain way at the committee meetings. Mm. So presumably at the council meeting that same process occurs. The official resolution will be to withdraw from the trial, but still keep talking to Mm. Transport for New South Wales, the correct department of the government, to say we're still interested... But let's get all those answers to those questions that I've been asking, the community's been asking first. Once we've got all those answers, then go to the community and say, here's what it looks Mm, like. mm. Would you like us to proceed? If the community says yes, we'll go full steam ahead. If the community says no, we'll say, okay, we didn't do anything, nothing happened, so that's all fine. One of the things that I'm keen to see, and personally, I would be in favour of it, again, depending on the answer to some of those questions, but at the first instance, just around the Tracker Riley Cycleway, not on roads, not on footpaths, because I'd like to see them used as a tourist attraction. One of the challenges for Dubbo is we need to keep our tourists here longer. Mm. We have got a wonderful asset in Taronga Western Plain Zoo. 300,000 people plus come to the zoo each year. Their primary reason for visiting Dubbo is the zoo. Sure, yeah. I can't think of another regional location in New South Wales that has a single tourist attraction that brings 300,000 people mm. a year it's across a to that one. Operation for it us, is fantastic it? for us. Yeah. Our challenge as a council and as a community, yeah. once we get them here, how do we keep them here? So we've got some other great assets. We've got Old Abojail, we've got Wellington Caves, we've got the Royal Flying Doctor Visitor Experience Centre, we've got other things. E scooters, in my personal opinion, this is not a council resolution, but in my personal opinion, e scooters. Is another thing that would keep them here a bit longer. So you can imagine a family comes along, Tracker Riley, nice safe area, not interacting with traffic. Hey, mum and dad, let's go and ride those e scooters. There's also an age that the state government's going to put on them. Okay. Let's go and ride those e scooters around Tracker Riley. That might keep them here for another few hours. And then they might say, oh, well, that's kept us here till that night. We might as well stay here overnight we then put some more money into the economy with some motels. Then they get up the next morning, go and have breakfast somewhere, put some more money back into the economy. They might go and do a bit of shopping, or they might go and visit something else. So every extra day we can keep those people mm-hmm. here, we know that puts approximately $200 per person per night back into the economy. Okay. So yeah. that's our ultimate aim. If you've is you've got 300,000
0: people coming here just for the zoo alone, those figures add up pretty quickly if we get the extra day out of them. That's right. Exactly right.
1: So e-scooters, in my opinion again, that's my personal opinion, is another way to keep them here a bit longer. So I think it'd be fantastic. Mm. Lots of questions to answer on all of that. Lots of steps to go. But at this stage, in terms of my initial answer to your question, which Mm. was yes and no, at this stage, we've withdrawn from the first part of the trial, but we certainly are keen to continue conversations, get all the details, go back to the community with all those details and say, do you want this? But I think in general, the community, the conversations I've had with the community, they've had some concerns, but I think a lot of those concerns are laid by having it on track O'Reilly, by having a speed limit of 10 k's an hour and by having the correct insurances in place. I think that'd be a great place to start the trial. Then you might want to go down the track further. For example, the School of Rural Health, the students there have been very keen to get e-scooters. They've given me some feedback saying we love the idea because we want to be able to go out down the CBD of Dubbo. We want to be able to go to where we live, for example, and the School of Rural Health is just up near the hospital. We want to have easy transport methods. They're still students. They don't always own a car, for example. Mm. They love the idea of an e-scooter. So there are certain groups in Dubbo who would love them to be expanded immediately. But again, we've got to go through that process and make sure we get it right from a community perspective. Absolutely.
0: Now, Matt, there's been a bit of discussion in regards to recently, and uh, you yourself were heading up this discussion, in regards to the whole idea of the possibility of local councils sharing their services with each other. In this modern world, obviously, with limited resources and financial pressures and all of that, is is this possibly a way forward? Because, um, you know, this would probably start a new era of uh, council discussions and uh, friendships and, uh, you know, again, sharing those resources. Is this the way we're going to go?
1: One of the frustrations that we certainly had at Dubbo and at Wellington when the amalgamation debate was on was that the state government was telling us that we should be able to gain some economies of scale out of sharing resources across the two council areas, the two previous council areas, Dubbo and Wellington. What we tried to explain to the government at the time, obviously it fell on deaf ears, but we mm-hmm. tried to explain that already councils were sharing a lot of services where it made sense and where it was convenient. And there was a conference on this week in Sydney that talked about exactly this. And I actually spoke at that conference because they asked me to come along and talk about it because they had identified Dubbo previously as an area that had been doing a lot of this sharing of services Mm. and had gained significant benefits out of it. One of the great things about sharing services in a less structured way, and when I say less structured, there are still structures that you put around it, but you share services with other council areas where it makes sense. So to give you some examples of things we've done in the past, at one stage in the past, Parks, in terms of their fleet of cars, did not have enough in their fleet that they could afford to employ a dedicated fleet manager and have the software tools to manage that fleet effectively. So the fleet was being managed somewhat ad hoc. They spoke to Dubbo, and we've got an excellent fleet management process and a great fleet manager here. Right. They spoke to Dubbo and said, is there any way you could help us? So in the end, as a fee for service, Parks' fleet was managed by Dubbo's fleet services. Okay. They paid us for that, so that made some return on our investment and our fleet services. We used our software, we used our personnel, our expertise, and that did a great job for parks until they did that for a number of years, until they got to the stage where they were large enough that they said, we can now do it on our own. We've now learnt from Dubbo. We can now afford to employ our own fleet manager and use some of the software tools that we've learned right. from. So that was a great outcome. Yep. They now manage their own fleet. We keep doing what we've been doing with our fleet. So that's the sort of thing you can do. There's another example in the past where – Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo, in some discussions that we were having, which we do often have discussions with other councils, Mm. we wanted an external auditor. When we used external audit firms for our audits, it was a very expensive process. You were contracting an external audit firm, they were charging a lot of money, and we thought it was too much money that were being charged. But if you employ an external auditor as one council, Mm. it can't be truly independent because if I employ you and then you find some problems and you report it back to me, I might say you no longer have a job, Mark. It's so, yes,
0: okay, gotcha. Yep, yep,
1: <laughs> so yep. having one external auditor to be employed by that organisation doesn't work. So Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo got together, we formed the BOD Alliance, right. B-O-D, not yep. a Love, very creative name. It. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. And amongst the three of those councils, we employed one auditor so that particular auditor did the external audits for those three councils mm. no individual council out of those three had the power to remove that particular auditor yeah, in fact the other two i suppose well it needed exactly right we needed the agreement was that all three had yes. to agree to remove the auditor to sack the auditor if you like yep. for whatever reason we might have yep. not Oh no, he's found out I'm doing something wrong. Yeah, we better yeah, sack the guy. Yeah. So again, that made sense from that perspective. So you can do it on a single council like we do with parks. You can mm-hmm. do it with three councils like we do with that. But then we also have an alliance of Western Councils. It used to be called OROC, around a region of councils. Right. The state government didn't like the idea of the rocks, the region of councils, so they removed the rocks. So we create a new one called Alliance of Western Councils. It happens to have exactly the same membership, the same number of councils, the Mm. same structure, but it's not called a rock. That's right. So that alliance, they do various things, or we as part of that alliance do various things. So for example, when we're going out for bitumen tenders, we use lots of bitumen across those 12 council areas. Each individual council could go out and do a tender for their amount of bitumen they might use in a certain period of time. But when we go out with 12 councils and say we'd like to do a tender across those 12, suddenly the volume of bitumen we need is much greater. Yes. The is
0: that a, vo- like a greater buying power type of Greater situation. buying power, that's yeah. exactly right. So
1: we go out, what we've got to have is an agreement amongst those councils that whichever company we end up going with, we've got to all agree to use them because it's yes. no good saying well, I prefer company A, company B won the tender. Oh, well, I'm going to ignore the tender. I'll go back to company A. You, yeah. You've got to commit to that. And that's fine. You put that agreement in place. But then you can imagine the volume of bitumen we would use across 12 councils yes. is much greater. Absolutely. Therefore, we get better pricing. And then all 12 councils benefit out of that. So these are some of the different services that we can share, some of the different mm. ways we can share going forward. And you can
0: definitely see the benefits of that, though. Like, oh. you know, it's this is... Obviously, this is something that councils are picking up on, but lots of businesses around the place, if you get the opportunity to to share a buying power experience, it's a wonderful way to go.
1: Yeah, and there are businesses that do that now. There are specific buying groups, as many businesses yes. as I know. In fact, even some of my businesses have been in buying groups in the past. So the logic is there. It just comes across to councils. Even with mm-hmm. Evo Cities, which was a program that started back in 2010, which was a marketing program, that was really about sharing the marketing collateral, sharing what we did on a marketing perspective, and that was seven cities, so that was Orange, Bathurst and Dubbo in the middle of the state, down the bottom of the state we had Wagga and Albury Up the top, we had Arbidon and Tamworth. We identified those seven as having enough similarities in trying to attract people from Sydney that Mm. we went out with a marketing campaign, and that marketing campaign we put in, each council put in, and it started off about $60,000 a year, ramped up to $70,000 over the years, we got some money out of state, got some money out of federal, got some money from private sponsorship. So out of the money that we put in, we contributed in the vicinity of four hundred to $500,000 a year, but we ran a marketing campaign that was about a million dollars a year in the Sydney metro market mm. to try and attract people to regional areas. And it worked very well while we were running that program in earnest. When the pandemic came along, we stopped running that program because we mm. didn't need to because people were, no, we're flocking to regional light, areas. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. need to keep advertising it. Yeah. And we'll look at that program again. And in fact, it's changed a little bit now, we've kind of enhanced that a bit. We've got 15 cities in a different group now, but at the same sort of concept we're working okay. on. But in essence, that's where you can share the marketing services, if you like, yep. and share what we've all got to basically have, which was a great lifestyle choice for people, but mm. it, it basically educate people in the city market about that. So there's different ways you can share mm. and certainly in talking about some of those different things at that particular conference, the, the people in the audience that I certainly talked to certainly went down that path and looked at that. One of the things I did mention is in any of these things, and in fact, I think it's anything to do with council, some of these large projects, never forget Hofstadter's law. Now, Hofstadter's right, law says that,
0: yeah, that, um, that any pass on to be Confucius. What's, that's what's right? this law?
1: Hofstadter's law says that any project you undertake will take longer than you think, even when you take into account Hofstadter's law. So it's a recursive law; it keeps oh, going yes, around it, in it circles, keeps on rolling around in circles. I get, right. I so I it's quite clever. But again, some things you think I oh, will put this a little uh, arrangement up with a couple of councils. We'll go and do this together we will take a month to do that and three months later you're still working on getting it right. So you, yeah. you do have to just keep in mind that it does take a little bit of time sometimes to get these things in place mm. but when you get them in place, they certainly have got benefits and they, they're flexible so you can mm. change those as you need. The parks example, mm. parks need us at one stage they don't need us anymore, yeah. that's okay we're fine with that. You keep modifying those and keep looking for opportunities to share those services. So, I do
0: love the idea there Matt, I think that whole idea if we can share our resources and yeah, share our ways of uh, getting our ideas out there with each other and to buying power, the whole lot. Terrific way to go. Now, Matt, uh, I suppose the next question comes down to the whole idea: Is Dubbo about to get a new housing precinct? Is this what's what's happening here? Is this an area um, in East Dubbo, West Dubbo, North West Dubbo? Whereabouts are we looking at?
1: We're getting lots of housing precincts and housing areas. are going yeah, ahead. It we seems are, to be the case right now. We are screaming ahead with different areas. What we've heard loud and clear from the community, from the government, but mainly from industry, is that one of our greatest challenges coming up, and I think many people would say roads at the moment, but ignoring Mm. roads at the moment, hopefully that's a short term problem, one of our greatest challenges coming up is having enough housing to house all the people that want to come to Dubbo. And that's fantastic. That's very exciting for me as the mayor. It's very exciting for you and I as residents that people want to come and live in this great area, but we need somewhere for them to live. One of the things that we've got out on public display at the moment, public exhibition, is the northwest urban release area. Now, there are different areas. and Let me go back a couple of steps. Mm. Often what we'll have with council is there'll be areas identified for industrial areas or for residential areas. So general areas are identified in terms of releases of large tracts of land. Okay. You're not looking at the detail of what the streets look like, how many blocks are going to be there, the block size. It's really just... A large candidate area. And if you go back about 20 years ago, Blue Ridge up near St. John's and the yeah. Christian School up around that area there, Blue Ridge there, you may remember there was a caravan park there. And the caravan park on the corner, gee, I can't remember the name of it, but.
0: I was at the. That wasn't the Poplars, was it? No, it wasn't the Poplars. Uh, anyway, there, was, yes, a caravan, the there, there yes. was
1: a caravan park on the corner there of Sheraton Road and the highway. Yes. And apart from that, the rest of it was farmland, was bushland. Yeah. When I first got onto council back in 2004, that was discussed as what was known as an industrial candidate area. Okay. There was no recognition of exactly what it would look like. It was just industrial candidate area. Investors came along. They actually bought that land there, had options on extended parts of that land and said, we believe we can develop all this. Mm. And as council went down the zoning and just identifying different areas, that became an industrial zoned area. Then plans became more developed, more Mm. refined. And we have now, as you see up there, Mm. a huge industrial area, a fantastic precinct area, and that will keep expanding and growing. That happens with residential areas as well. A lot of Keswick, for example, is that same sort of process where it's been farmland that was bought back in the 70s, and different areas have been identified that will be different types and styles of housing, and then they're identified. The northwest area, again, we've got a lot of development that's occurred on the eastern part of Dubbo. There's more development that's going to occur on the western side of the river. And a former director of council, Melissa Watkins, used to talk about it regularly, Mm. the idea that we've expanded a long way east, but we want to keep the CBD as the central Mm. business district, not on the edge of Dubbo. So the expansion of Dubbo to the west makes a lot of sense. And we're seeing that now around the Grangewood area that started to develop, along Menor Road, there's more developments that are occurring there, and they'll keep having developments along Manor Road, and that'll be good for residents out there because that road will be repaired as that happens. Mm -hmm. But this Northwest Precinct area is essentially, if you think of the river and go west of the river, and then you go north of Thompson Street or the the railway bridge, for example, if you go north of that area there, there's a whole area of land up there that at the moment is just, looks like, old farmland. Part of it used to be an old sewage treatment plant. It looks like just an area there. So that's
0: all council-owned land up through there? Not
1: all of it. A lot of it is. But again, these precinct areas don't have to be council-owned land. It really is about saying where is some future development going to go, Mm -hmm. what sort of development will occur there. And what that does as well is for developers is gives them certainty. So if you're a developer and you own a certain parcel of land and you think something's going to happen with it, you are trying to decide whether to invest further, whether I should start to develop plans for it. I want to know as a developer what's happening with those areas of land. Mm. Is this going to be joined to another industrial area or another residential area? Yep. What's going to happen? And a good council and a good council with long-term planning has those plans in place out for a long, I'm talking decades in the future, so you can get investors to come along and develop those mm. and also not change those plans. And I, if I go back many years ago, the old RAF base, the former RAF base, there was a, a particular owner of that who was trying to get that rezone for a whole range of industrial land and then they wanted to put certain businesses on there. And part of the reason, there were a number of reasons that council said no to that, but one of the many reasons was that it would erode investor confidence dramatically if we had the industrial candidate areas like the Blue Ridge, for example, mm. there's another industrial candidate area out near the airport. If we said, we've got these long-term plans in place, we've said what's going to happen with the former RAF base and then another developer comes along and we just change our mind in a very ad hoc, non-planned way, yeah. then investors would say, well, why have we invested all this money in Dubbo when you've just changed the rules, pulled the rug out from underneath us, we're yeah. not going to invest money in Dubbo in the future. So you need that certainty and that's one thing council can do yeah. is provide that certainty. We've got this out on public exhibition at the moment. Okay. The Okay. Anyone that wants to put an application in about that Put their comments in about that they've gotten to a 5 pm on the 16th of December, but you can go to Council's website and have a look at that, and it just gives you an idea. Of that growth of Dubbo out in that area. So that will be a northwest, not just a pure west expansion of Dubbo, but a northwest expansion of Dubbo. Mm. So that'll be interesting and that'll be another part of Dubbo. We'll look at that in 10 years' time yeah. and we'll say, wow, where did this come from? Where did all these houses come from? This was just paddocks last time I looked out here. It's
0: like when they first built a Rana Mall out there many, many years ago in East Dubbo. That was the exact same situation. Everyone yeah. said, why are they building a mall so far out of Dubbo? <laughs> What's right. going on there? It was almost like a dirt track leading out to it as well.
1: And it is quite incredible how quickly things change, even along Wheeler's Lane. I can remember. Speaking of Arana Mall, back mm. when we were at school, we used to run the good old-fashioned Rotary Arana Run for Fun. Oh, used right. to go for yes, Arana absolutely.
0: Mall. You'd go up along Sheridan Road. Not Sheridan Road. Um, no, along Wheeler's Lane. Wheeler's Lane, that's, that's it, right. up at the far end there. But it, it was Hennessy dirt. Lane. That's yes. right,
1: Hennessy Drive. You'd go from Arana Mall to Riverdale, yes. and you'd go along that Big dirt lift. track there. Mm. And now we look at that, and oh. we're thinking that was paddocks and dirt track, and now oh. there's all these houses being built. Absolutely. So it doesn't seem to take... That long, but maybe we're showing our age too, Mark. That so. <laughs> could be the case, buddy. That could well be the case. But yeah, keep an eye for that. If you want to put a submission in, then do that, and we welcome all that information coming in from people. Absolutely.
2: a cool
0: question for you, a uh, bit of a technical question. Um, the whole idea of a standing committee. Now, I noticed the fact that uh, this week when you flew back in, you, there was a, a standing committee that you had to go to for a... A number of different operations here. So, what what is the standing committee first and foremost? And for those people who may not know, and this week, what were you involved in with that?
1: So, the standing committee process for council gives the community and council and council laws an opportunity to discuss things in a slightly less formal environment, but also give the community a bit of advance notice about something that might be coming up. The critical thing for a council, where we make decisions mm. and where the buying decisions occur is a council meeting. So we hold a council meeting on the fourth Thursday of each month. Generally, we change it sometimes around Christmas, for example, or or a public holiday falls on that date. But essentially, the fourth Thursday of each month is the formal council meeting. The mayor of the day chairs that meeting and councillors resolve things. So, for example, a recommendation might be put up or a notice of motion might be put up, and that resolution of council is a binding legal agreement that the staff must follow. The staff might think it's the stupidest idea ever known to mankind, Mm but they've got to follow that resolution. If we resolve at a council meeting to go and paint the roads pink, the council have got to go out there and start painting the roads pink, even though it might be a stupid idea. Mm. And I'm not against the colour pink, but I'm just saying as an example. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're formal council resolution Now, a council meeting is a very formal process. Yeah. In the debate during a council meeting, you can only debate a topic once. So in the council meeting, you can only stand to your feet and yeah. talk about a topic for five minutes. So you can't
0: keep once. coming back in and once you've made your point, that's it.
1: That's it. You've got okay. one one bite of the cherry, one chance right. to do that. So it's a very formal, structured process yeah. and it's designed that way deliberately because we want to get decisions. We want to get decisions in a relatively short time frame, mm. but we also want to get the right decisions. So two weeks prior, so the second Thursday of each month generally, again, that sometimes changes for different reasons, but generally the second Thursday of each month is what we have... Uh, where we have our standing committee meetings. Now, the standing committees, same membership, all councillors are there. We have three of those different standing committees. They're chaired by three different councillors. So rather than the mayor of the day chairing those meetings, we've got three chairs. So we've got Councillor Damien Marne chairs one, Councillor Jess Goff chairs another, Councillor Josh Black chairs another. And what you have with a standing committee is a little bit more relaxed in the debate process. You can enter the debate as many times as you like. You're meant to still talk for no more than five minutes, but
0: okay. So there's a restriction; you can't a, keep rabbiting that's on.
1: That's right, but yeah. the rules are a little bit more relaxed. It's unusual that someone will be pulled up for talking for six or seven minutes. Yeah. Maybe they get to ten or fifteen minutes. They might someone yeah. might say, "Hold on, yeah. you've done enough now." There's all you don't need to stand up, so it's a, okay. a, a bit less formal in that process. Yeah. But the beauty of the standing committee meetings is we bring forward lots of items that might need some more discussion, some more debate around those items, and then what we have is not a resolution of council but a recommendation from the committee meetings, and then in two weeks' time, that will go to the council meeting. And if everything's okay and we haven't changed our mind that two weeks, then they'll just go through fairly quickly at a council meeting. But if there's something out of there where we've thought about it for two weeks and we've had some Mm -hmm. more community feedback, then someone says, no, look, I made a certain decision two weeks ago, but... Now I've considered it further. I'm not comfortable with that. So we might actually debate one of those topics again. So I'll give you a second chance to have okay. a debate about those. Yeah. The other part is that it gives the community a chance to hear about certain things and actually hear what councillors think. So as a perfect mm. example, e-scooters was one of those topics on no, Thursday I was say, night.
0: Would the e-scooters be a classic example of this, wouldn't exactly it? Exactly right.
1: So that was brought through the committee meetings. We had a bit of a discussion about that at the committee meetings. Councillors voted on that at the committee meeting, and more than likely it was a unanimous vote at the community meeting, more than likely in two weeks time Mm. the same decision will occur and that's when it's then a binding decision Mm. but it may be that the community says no what are you doing cancelling that trial we want to go ahead as fast as we can and councillors are inundated with information from the community and then councillors might go back and talk to the staff a bit more and say well we went this way but We actually want to go a different way. How can we do that? And what would be the process? Mm. So then it might be a change of that resolution when it comes to resolution.
0: I can see the benefits of this. Like, you know, from the point of view of it, it's you and I having a discussion. I walk away from the standing committee with, yep, I'm 100% on this idea. Yep. I go off. I have a chat to a few of uh, the council members and uh, staff members in that space there. They have a chat to me about it. I suddenly decide, well, actually, I don't know if I feel that way anymore about this. So, I go to the council, if I'm an alderman, I sit down then and say, Well, actually, listen, I want to change my opinion on this or I want to uh, change my ideas that I presented before. Yeah. It, so, does it base, is that the idea of the two-week lag as well? So, That's it gives right. people a chance to further discuss the issue.
1: Correct. Okay. And it gives people a chance to debate that in that less formal environment as well. So, yes. you can tease out any little extra ideas. And, and again, in that first reading, if you like, of it, when you're going through it, you can debate it a few times because you might think of some different things as you're debating it. By the time it gets to a council meeting, you've hopefully gone through that process and you've had those couple of bites at the cherry and you've thought about it a bit Mm. and then you might have that different idea presented. But again, it also comes back to that community feedback, that community consultation. Mm. The last council had a process where the committee meetings could actually have formal resolutions of council – and I was very uncomfortable with that, and we talked to our councils about that when this new council was formed, and we changed that so that you can actually have committee meetings who can actually, you can change the rules there, we can actually have them as formal binding agreements of council, but again, we didn't feel comfortable with that. So now we've got that process in place, which essentially has that, and this is how it used to be with the old City council as well, where the committees don't formally resolve opinions, the committees make recommendations through to council. Mm. And as a, another example on Thursday night, there was one vote for, another topic or another item that was 5-3, the vote. Now, there were two councils away on Thursday night, but it was 5-3. So you can see there was a little bit... And the debate went back and forth around a few times on that one. It was a good, healthy debate there. And I really enjoy that sort of debate. Good ideas come out of that often. But the vote was 5-3. Now, you can see there straight away... It would only take one of those people to change their mind. Well, and suddenly so you've got
0: to draw. That's for right,
1: all. the vote yes. for all. So that's the sort of thing that can happen. Mm. I think it's unlikely on the scooter one because of the unanimous vote, but it could change. Mm. But on the 5-3 vote, mm. yeah, that's one that could possibly change by the time it gets to a council yeah. meeting in two weeks' time. And that's where that
0: great discussion takes place over two weeks. And, and, and I'm sure councillors will yeah.
1: talk to each other in the meantime. They'll talk to the staff. We'll ask for a bit more information. We did actually ask for a bit more information at that committee meeting. So yeah. that information might come forward two weeks' time. Might be a different decision on that one, might mm. be the same, but it, again, you feel like you get better outcomes, better decisions Absolutely. via that process.
0: Oh, well done.
2: There's a little interesting
0: one here, Matt. Um, there was a presentation by uh, some insurance on the risk associated with allowing residents to do work on our road network. So are we looking at here the whole idea that uh, I can go out there and I get my shovel with a bit of bitumen and start fixing up a few of the potholes around the place? And Is, is that in the way it's going to go? Or is, it, is Council concerned the fact that if people start doing this, that uh, there could be insurance risks like can we start going out and doing our own fixing, or what's what's the plan there?
1: No, at the moment. Okay. We do get requests. We've got very generous people in Dubbo and yes. people who really want to help the community. So we do get requests, both myself and through the council staff and through to other councillors, to be able to go out and actually do some things on our roads. Now, I'm not talking about get out there on the highway and cut out a 10-metre section. Out the back there. Yeah, that's right. The the and forward, do that. Way we go. Properly. It's probably more in some of our unsealed sections of road, some of the farmers that might have some equipment, for example. Mm. But we even have offers from people who want to get out and help mow some of the verges of the road, people who might have some kids that sometimes have to walk along a section of road to get to a school bus, for example, Mm. and the grass gets a bit long. So there are all these people out there, very generously.
0: Well-intentioned.
1: Well-intentioned, who would love to get out there and help council. And I love that. I really appreciate that. The problem is, and this is where we've been having some discussions, the problem Mm. is that... If I get out there on my, I've got my tractor at my farm and I get out there and patch some of the road work and I do that not to a correct standard or do that using materials that aren't of the correct standard, someone comes along and let's go worst case scenario, someone comes along that road, Mm. they have an accident because of the lowest set of repair. It's not, the farmer might know how that road works very well, but someone else comes along on that public road and they hit a section and the worst case scenario, someone dies from that, Mm. then obviously someone will go to us and say, well, it was your poor road repair that caused the death of this person. Mm. And we would say, well, we didn't repair that road. Farmer Joe. Now, Farmer Joe, in good faith, has done a repair there. He doesn't want to be sued for the repair Mm. that he's done on that road. So at this stage, all those requests that have come in, we've said, you can't do it. You legally can't go and start patching roads on a public bit of land or public Mm. road. You can't go and start mowing the grass. For example we've got certain protocols in place. When we're out mowing the grass along Tracker Raleigh cycleway, and I've I've done it myself, I've been riding my bike along, and I noticed that the guys out there doing the work with whippersnippers and mowers will stop that because they don't want a, f- a stone to flick up and yes. hit someone as they ride past. Yes. Someone doing it privately might just be mowing along, oblivious to the fact that a stone might fly up next you know, a stone flies up and you lose an eye. Yep. It's because that person didn't follow correct protocols. They didn't know about those. Yep. So you can't do that at the moment. But what I've said, and certainly counsellors have been the same, Is there a way we can do it? Is there some Mm. mechanism in place where we could actually accept the help from our residents Mm. and we wouldn't expose the residents to a risk of being sued? We don't want to expose council and we don't want to increase the risk for the residents that are driving on those roads or out near some of those paths or grass uh, grass areas. So we had a meeting with our insurer. What did they say? Well... (laughs) You can imagine an insurer says no. The first first It's always a normal reaction for
0: most insurance companies. It's
1: the first reaction from insurers and solicitors, usually, I find. (laughs) So we've talked to our solicitors, we've talked to our insurers, and again, we had a a Zoom conference with the counsellors, with our senior staff, Mm. with our insurers just this week, and we said, we really want this to happen. How can we make it happen? Mm. And it was quite amusing at one stage because we had three staff on that particular Zoom call in three separate locations. And... When we listened to all the problems with it, all the various issues, there was a question asked by one of our councillors, so is there any way we can make this happen? And two people answered immediately. One said yes, one said no. <laughs> so straight away we went, this is the problem we <laughs> I'm have. I'm still
0: in the same position here. Where do I stand? That's right. That's right. Yeah.
1: What we would have to do, and this is an area we're exploring at the moment, okay. what we would have to do is we would have to effectively engage the farmer, the resident, the person who wants to do it, as a contractor. The Wrong. payment for that okay. contract would be zero. Yeah. So we would engage someone as a contractor. We would have to make sure they had followed some like a set, induction processes okay, yep, or ahead. some protocols yes. just the same way as a contractor would have to do. So if I'm a, a contractor that's mowing certain areas, I can show them that I can use my equipment safely because I've done an induction on that. Yeah. I can show them that I might have some ISO standards, for example. There are various yeah. things that I can show, either an induction process or certain things that I've got so in place. An
0: online thing or a face-to-face or how would you go about that? Well, this is the challenge. Yeah.
1: You can imagine saying to a farmer who just wants to fill some potholes in a row that five of his farmer neighbours use. You've
0: got to come in for two days and do this induction ceremony with me. That's
1: right, all of those problems. So one of the things that came out of this, and this comes back to the shared services we talked about previously, Mm. one of the things that we said was that, it's probably, all the insurance said, it's probably a pretty big task for one council to undertake mm. to say, let's go and put in all these induction processes. They might be online induction processes, that would make sense, but they take more work and effort to put in place. We go and set up all these induction processes for the 20 people that we might have come and help us do some work in our local government area. A lot of expense in doing that. Then we've also got to just keep an eye on that. Are mm. they following the protocols? Are they following the procedures that we have in place for the rest of our staff or our employees? checking
0: off at the end?
1: All of that sort of yeah. thing. So there are some problems with it. Mm. One of the suggestions from the insurance company was, if you can get together with a number of councils... Ideally, it would be across the state, the state government doing it, but I, I don't see there are enough councils that would want to do it, that the whole state government would be involved. But if we got together with a number of surrounding councils and other rural councils, maybe just people that have got some of these issues that they've identified, if we got together with 20 or 30 other councils, that might be a way for us to develop what we need, develop some of the induction process, some of the paperwork we need, and then when a farmer says, We'd like to help you out. We say, fantastic. We've yes. got this online process. I know it's a bit of a pain, but you're gonna to have to sit in front of a computer for an hour yep. just to tick that off. And you're gonna have to sign this paperwork to show that you've done that. Once you do that, take a photo before you do the work, do the work, take a photo afterwards, and send that in to us, and that'll be our check. Mm. That'd be a really effective way of doing it. Now we're a long way from that mm. at this stage. We're a long way of getting from getting sign off from our insurance company, long way from getting sign-off from our solicitors, mm. and we've got to work out a way to get together with some of those other councils. But What I want to say to the residents of Dubbo is thank you for all the help you want to give and we're working on a way we can make it happen. Just don't get too frustrated because it's not going to happen overnight. And we are very much not in the industry of exposing our residents to greater risk, exposing people that are doing the work or people that are using the work that's having already been done. We don't want to expose anyone to greater risk. I don't want to be the mayor of a council that causes death or injury to someone because we rushed something through and put yes. something in place. So it is frustrating for people who want to help, but at the same time, safety is the primary concern, even though it's frustrating on some of these roads. And some people would say some of these roads are unsafe. We don't want to do repairs. It creates yeah. another yeah, safety problems. aspect. So yeah, it's a problem, but we are trying to work our way through those issues. I love issues.
0: the way we're thinking, though, moving forward on this.
2: <laughs>
0: now, looking here, uh, Matt, in regards to... Um, the City Council in, in the region here we've got, it looks like you're looking at going green power electricity supply to 100%. Is, is this correct? We're looking at moving into this direction? Like, you know, I certainly heard there during the week that um, they're talking, what is it, by 2030 or something, the world's temperature is going to be risen significantly, another one and a half degrees. And that whole idea of um, thinking globally, acting locally, is, is such an important thing. So are we looking to go 100% here in dubbo from the point of view of the council operations is that how this is going to be working
1: we've got a number of things that we're looking at doing and i think you're right there one of the crucial things is some people say to me well what's it matter what we do here in dubbo what's it matter what i do on my house or my car because we've got other countries around the world that are producing much more co2 than we are so who cares let's just keep doing what we're doing in fact there's a great quote from margaret mead who coincidentally died 44 years ago this tuesday she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. It's a brilliant quote, isn't it? All words to that effect. They mm. might, might yeah, be the quite the exact it's, words.
0: It's almost ad verbatim, I'd suggest, buddy. It's, you're spot on.
1: Yeah, and so one of the things that I talk about often, and I certainly talk to this with my kids, for example, or when I go and mm. talk to school groups, is every individual can make a difference. And if every individual did make a difference, it would make a huge difference. That's right. So at council, we're a bit bigger than one individual. We have to look at ways that we can make a difference. Now, we've got a couple of electricity contracts. We've got our small sites contract, Mm -hmm. which is for our small sites, surprisingly. We've got to come up with better names, haven't we? (laughs) And we've got another contract for our larger sites.
0: We're pretty good on acronyms right now. Surely we can find a good acronym
1: for it. Yeah, that's right. Small sites, SS. We need better than that, definitely. So (laughs) the small sites contract is worth, typically in the vicinity, we spend about a million dollars a year on the electricity for our small sites across the Dubai Regional Council, LGA. Now, we've got a number of solar panels on various rooftops in in our building. So, for example, Western Plains Cultural Centre, we've got a 70-kilowatt system on that. And so we've obviously gone down that path trying to work out ways to produce some of that electricity. But we can also have contracts now where we can buy green power. Now, we put out a tender for the small sites, and what we're conscious of doing is, Not only do we want to make sure we're doing the right thing by the environment, but Mm. we have to make sure we're financially sustainable as well. So we want to make sure that what we're doing is sensible environmental-wise and sensible financial-wise. So we put out a new tender for our small sites, our current contract that we've got. They're typically five or ten year contracts you do for electricity. Our current contract finishes in December this year. So we right. put out a tender a couple months ago for the supply of all of our small sites. We wanted another ten year contract for that. We knew our current pricing. So basically out to the market, we want the best pricing we can possibly get. Mm-hmm. And we wanted the best pricing we could possibly get with green power, 100% green power, or just normal electricity, carbon, uh, coal-based burning CO2, yep. et cetera, power. Yep. So we wanted to get the best we could possibly get from all of that. When the tenders came back in, it was quite surprising and quite pleasing. The final tender we went with was a green power tender, so 100% guaranteed right. green power, all produced by renewables, but it saved approximately $120,000 a year Isn't over our previous contract. So a lot of the people that talk about the fact yes. that green We've power... is. hold on to the
0: coal. It's, it's so important. That's it's right. It's cheaper.
1: And they think that renewables idea the great thing about renewables is you spend money, significant amounts of money on putting it in place in the first place, wind turbines, solar panels, a lot of expense in putting those in. But then unlike a coal-fired power plant, you don't have to keep feeding that particular facility there. You have some people employed, not many, I'd probably prefer to see more people employed for yeah. the sake of the economy, but you see some people employed that are just checking on things, making sure the wind turbines are running correctly, making sure they've got ongoing maintenance with them. But for example, in Wellington, we've got a 200 megawatt solar farm there, mm. four people are employed. So mm. it's not a lot of expense. You've got a, a wind farm there with 33 wind turbines there, about six people are employed with that. So you don't have many people employed. So the ongoing expense is minimal. With coal-fired power plant, it'll keep feeding coal in. Now, given the fact this was a 10-year contract... I can only assume Mm. that the pricing that was built into this contract was built into it to be cheaper over that 10 years using green power because as time goes on, green power is going to be significantly cheaper than coal-fired power because, again, you put the infrastructure in place, you don't need to keep feeding that infrastructure. So I'm pretty excited by that. Councils Mm. are pretty excited by that. So we've gone ahead with that particular tender saving, you know, in essence, $1.2 million over the next 10 years yeah. and having all that generation with green power. We've got to look at our large sites next when that contract comes off. And I'm not sure exactly the date that finishes there, but this, to so me... This
0: could even be more significant when it comes to that because they are the larger sites. So you'd assume the fact there'll be more energy... Save more money down the track as well.
1: Exactly right. And we might actually see some further changes in renewable power. This was based on the current estimations for this particular company that won that tender. Mm. But as we go down the track, that renewable power might be even cheaper. So I'm pretty excited by that. Saving the environment, Mm. saving money, it's a win-win for both the environment and for council.
0: Margaret, me to be proud. Now, during the week, there was a citizenship ceremony. And 28 people this week became citizens from 11 different countries. So that's here in our Dubbo region, Matt. That's that's where this took place. Um, so talk me through it. So in regards to this, how this works, have, have these citizens been in Dubbo now for a while and, and finally apply for Australian citizenship and they decide to sort of come here and settle here in Dubbo? How does, how does the citizenship process work for us?
1: It's a fairly long process for people to get there and it's done via the federal government we get to do the most exciting part of the process. Mm. The final step mm. is when the mayor of the day of whatever area they live in gets to actually formally make these people citizens. They have to go through that formal part of the final process to become citizens. But there's a lot of work that goes on beforehand. They have to have been in Australia for a number of years. They have to go through and make the application and fill in all the application forms. So there's all that paperwork side, and then the federal government does Mm. the background checks on that person. So there's all these different things. And I spoke to one person at the Citizenship this week who had been in Australia for 11 years, and she came from the UK. And I actually said why did you take so long? And the usual answer I get is that, well, I'm now a laid back Aussie. I just got around to it when I got around to it. But <laughs> she'd actually gone over, her and her partner had gone back to England right. to spend some time there to visit family and just really almost say goodbye to England because okay. they were making their future yeah, life here yeah, in yeah, Australia. Nice, nice. But they were overseas for long enough that when they came back, She'd already been in Australia for six years, came back, made the application, and they said, No, you're over in England for more than three months. Oh, really? The timer starts again. Oh, my goodness. So she had to wait another five years, or it's, it's been another five years now mm, before she could actually pretty do that. It's
0: tough considering that I'm about to go overseas about five or six weeks. I better go and check my you better Be careful, that's right. <laughs> of, just in case. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's, a, there's a, a process, and I'm not specifically familiar with that process, all the parameters around that process, because it's not something that council controls. What we get from the federal government is we get names sent to us to say, here are these people that are ready to be made citizens. We wait till that builds up to a reasonable number. We don't want to go into a citizenship ceremony every day. We wait till it builds up to usually around the 30 mark. But what we're finding now is we're doing that maybe every two months, sometimes even more common than that. But we do actually have a bit of a a lag now to Australia Day because lots of people want to be made citizens on Australia Day. So we won't do any now until Australia Day. And we might end up with a much larger number on Australia Day. So there's a process that goes beforehand. There's all that process with the federal government that goes Mm. beforehand. And then the final step is we get notified of the names. We organise a ceremony. And I say to people every citizenship ceremony I've ever done – I say to people, there are lots of jobs that you do as mayor. There are lots of things that are really tough things to do. Lots of things are really exciting things to do. But the number one absolutely exciting, really fun thing to do as mayor is to make people, citizens. It's a really uplifting experience. Number two, very closely behind that, is doing a podcast with you. (laughs) Number one, just shading (laughs) that, is that. So I essentially stand in front of the the group of people and all of their family and friends that come along with them as well. So we end up with, as you said, 28. Mm. But on the citizenship ceremony this week, there were probably 60 or 70 people in the room because Mm. of those friends and family that come along. So I I get to stand there. I get to talk to them about Dubbo a little bit. Your answer about, have they been in Dubbo for a length of time? Usually they have, but they don't have to have been. They have to have been in Australia. Right, okay. Most of these people have been in Dubbo, but we don't have that information. We have the country they came from, so we yeah. know they came from 11 different countries. Yeah. We, we know their basic details, their name, et cetera. But what I like to do afterwards is go and talk to them and find out about lots of details. And you find out fascinating stories. Mm. I, I say to them during my formal part of the process that I'll ask, I'll go around and talk to as many of you as possible and ask, why you are here in Dubbo? The great mayor of Davo is the correct answer as to why you're here in Davo. I don't always get that answer from them, though. I've even given them the print. <laughs> pre- I don't understand
0: why that. What's I'm, going on there? I've prompted them. Yeah, and there needs to be some more prompting coming on. Obviously, right, you know? yeah.
1: But there's formal parts of the process. I've got to read out a message from the minister. Okay. There's a formal oath or affirmation or a pledge they've got okay. to do. So there are f- certain formal steps mm. that they have to do. Yeah. And then at the end, I like to actually make sure they're true Aussies by giving the traditional Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Aussie, Aussie. Oy, make oy, sure oy. that's right, make sure that they get the oi 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 at the end, and they all seem to get that very well. Yes. Good loud voices for that. So it is an exciting process, but it's I actually find that a really fascinating process. For a start, they've left the country mm. they were presumably born in, that they grew up in. That's a big step. I can't ever see myself no. leaving Australia. So I, I have a bit of trouble wrapping my head around the fact that they have left their country. Now, there's a whole range of reasons they mm. have left their country. And there's some countries that are a lot less pleasant to live in mm, than Australia. Absolutely. But then you've got a couple hundred countries around the world to choose from. Yeah. So you sit back and say, where am I going to go? Where in the world am I going to go now that I've made the decision to leave my country? And mm. then I'm pretty excited oh, they've picked Australia. Yep. Then out of all the places in Australia... I
0: know where this is going. That's yep. right.
1: They picked. Dubbo, yes. and again, I'm pretty excited by that. So Absolutely. it's a really uplifting
0: experience. I just love that, though. That's what makes it so special to me, oh, these ceremonies, is yeah. that people will move to Dubbo. You yeah, know, that's a natural sort of thing. And we've got a great town here. We know that. You and I both know that. Yeah. I think... The fact that, as you say, you've come from other country, you could choose anywhere to go, but you've come to choose Dubbo to stay in and to live in and make it your home. To me, that's extraordinary. I find that so lovely and such a wonderful, embracing thing for all of us here in town.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it is is uplifting for people in the community, Mm. but you just see the beaming smiles when they come to get their certificate. Mm. After you do the formal part of the ceremony, you you go and hand the certificates over one on one and you see them coming up. Again, if they're beaming, some people are crying. Yeah. You see some of the kids that come up with their gorgeous, parents who are just, yeah. you know, so excited and hardly wait to take the certificate mm. to school and show their, their, their friends at school. And the parents say, You're not taking that certificate to school, you'll lose it at school. So yep, you right. know, definitely that's don't it. take that. Yeah, yeah. And even their friends, I ask some of the kids about what their friends know about it. They say, Yeah, we've got a cake organized tomorrow at school that's after great. this. And yeah. so it is a really exciting thing. But the the family and friends together as well you see them really excited by it. And it is an open ceremony, so anyone can come along. Mm. We should advertise them a bit better, I think, to let people mm. know about it because anyone that came along would sit back there. Yeah. Even if you didn't know anyone that was there on the day that was becoming a citizen, you'd go, wow, yeah. I'm really excited to live in this community. Look at how excited these people are Absolutely. to move movie, And I've been yeah. here all my life. Maybe I'm taking it for granted a little bit. But mm. no, it is a really exciting day. And again, Australia Day will be another exciting be day. Uh, I just love those days. And we normally have... A number of the councillors come along as well. When they can make it, our local member and our federal member come along as well as part of the ceremony. So it's great when you see those again. If they can make mm. it, they can. If they can't, they can't. But we had a couple of councillors along this week to be part of that ceremony as well. And again, it's uplifting for those as well. We get to hand out little bags of various things. We have a koala, a little toy That's koala in there. there. it is, very we Aussie. Have, we have some Vegemite in there as well, some Dubbo stickers, all sorts of things there. So a really exciting day. And welcome to those 28 people that have done moved to Absolutely.
0: here, here to that. Very quickly, Matt, we talked about this last week, uh, This the 20th anniversary of the Shoyan Gardens, which are coming up, I'm assuming, next weekend on the Sunday the 20th between 4.30 and 8.30. Again, quick little call-out. What are we going to expect on this day?
1: So there's a few things happening on that day and one of the things I'd say is there are some formal ceremonies, some formal dinners, etc. that are fairly limited in the numbers we can take to those just on space we've got. But we want to actually have... Dubbo is a big part of that celebration. So on the 20th, between 4.30 and 8.30 p.m., you've got the Shoyuan Garden open to the public, a whole range of things, some tea house demonstrations there. That tea house is Mm. the most authentic tea house in this nation. It was built in Japan, built by our sister city in Japan called Minikemo, taken apart, put in containers, shipped over here. They sent their builders over here, Mm built that tea so fantastic there do they
0: do the traditional Japanese making of the tea during this as well we've
1: got people in Australia who are authorised to do the traditional making of tea Mm. but we'll have some people coming over from Japan and they'll be involved in some of these ceremonies as well Sydney fire dancers we've got tin roof jazz band so it'll be a really exciting afternoon there and we've got a delegation coming over unfortunately the mayor can't make it I know the the mayor what's happened I've been to visit him he's been over here before Mm. but there was a problem with his visa I think he left his visa Visa application three months
0: maybe left couldn't get it back in I don't know
1: something like that but there was a problem with his visa application (laughs) so yeah so he's not going to make it now but there'll still be a delegation from Japan over here for that celebration there so it's a really exciting day and that Japanese garden keeps changing the hasn't happened in the last couple of years but before COVID we had gardens sent over from Minakamo to show our gardeners how to basically make sure that garden was kept Mm. as authentic as possible. Mm. So it's a really rich relationship we have Mm. between Minocamo and Dubbo. And I I can say this quite easily, Mm. we've received a lot more out of it Financially, than Minakamo has. Oh, so okay, they've yeah. they've donated yeah. that tea house. It's they've, wonderful. They've donated the gates there. They send those gardeners over on a regular basis. We go over there and do some things with those yeah. uh, with with the Minacamo as well. But we certainly haven't given them anywhere near the level of gifts that they've given us. Mm. So it's a really rich relationship. But we've certainly been great beneficiaries of that.
0: Well, imagine when they come over next week. They're going to be incredibly proud to see what uh, what our guys out here have been doing with it because it looks absolutely magic right now. <laughs> All right, Matt, we're going to finish up today with your limerick. So uh, what do you got for us this week, buddy? What's, what's the plan? What
1: did you finish with? To our fallen soldiers we owe a great debt Who have kept us free and resisted each threat We stay silent as we pray And honour them on this day The 11th of November Lest we forget
0: Oh, as per usual, Matt, you never cease to uh, surprise me and amaze me with regards to what you can come up with. Well done, well done. Well, folks, that finishes our this week's edition of the Merrill Memo podcast. We'll be back next week. For the rest of the week, take care.
2: Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.